save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in store and on Menards.com. If I am fortunate enough to be confirmed as the next Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, I can only hope that my life and career, my love of this country and the Constitution, and my commitment to upholding the rule of law and the sacred principles upon which this great nation was founded will inspire future generations of Americans. I'm pleased to nominate Judge Jackson will bring extraordinary qualifications, deep experience and intellect, and a rigorous judicial record to the court. Judge Jackson deserves to be confirmed as the next Justice of the Supreme Court. Thank you again, Mr. President, for this extraordinary honor. Hi, and welcome to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the courts and the law and the Supreme Court. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I cover the courts for Slate.com. And this is indeed an historic moment for the U.S. Supreme Court. On Friday afternoon, President Joe Biden announced the nomination of the first black woman as a nominee for the U.S. Supreme Court. After 115 such nominations, finally truly a momentous announcement. Today, uh, as we watch freedom and liberty under attack abroad, I'm here to fulfill my responsibilities under the Constitution to preserve freedom and liberty here in the United States of America. And it's my honor to introduce to the country a daughter of former public school teachers, a proven consensus builder, an accomplished lawyer, a distinguished jurist, one of the nation's most, on one of the nation's most prestigious courts. My nominee for the United States Supreme Court is Judge Katanji Jackson. Now, we would be remiss if we didn't also take note of the fact that, as you just heard the president allude to, this week also saw the catastrophic invasion of Ukraine by Russia. And our thoughts are with all of our listeners who are feeling unsettled and anxious over these events. And our thoughts are certainly with the Ukrainian people at this time. It's also been a really hard week for LGBTQ Americans, especially younger LGBTQ Americans. And later on in the show, Slate Plus listeners will get to hear from Mark Joseph Stern about a whole host of really worrying legal setbacks for gay and trans rights across the country. If you are not a Slate Plus member, you can join us by heading over to slate.com slash amicus plus. Membership will get you access to ad-free versions of all of our shows, plus bonus segments on this show and on Slow Burn and on the Political Gab Fest. And you will never hit a paywall on slate.com and you will be supporting all of the work we do here at the magazine. That's Slate.com slash Amicus Plus. And to those of you who are already members, as always, thank you so much. Today we want to lift up 
a really historic occasion. Katanji Brown Jackson is a really extraordinary judge, mentor, and I guess speaking just personally for a second, also just an extravagantly decent and good human being. Her nomination to the U.S. Supreme Court is historic, yes, but she's also an individual whose pathway to the Supreme Court is not at all predictable rather remarkable and worth looking at in depth. And here she is on Friday afternoon accepting her nomination. Thank you very much, Mr. President. I am truly humbled by the extraordinary honor of this nomination. And I am especially grateful for the care that you have taken in discharging your constitutional duty in service of our democracy with all that is going on in the world today. I also offer my sincere thanks to you as well, Madam Vice President, for your invaluable role in this nomination process. I must begin these very brief remarks by thanking God for delivering me to this point in my professional journey. My life has been blessed beyond measure, and I do know that one can only come this far by faith. To understand who Judge Jackson is and what she is going to bring to the Supreme Court if she is confirmed, we turn today to Slate's very own Mark Joseph Stern, who covers the courts for us and who's been watching Judge Jackson for low this many years, and also to Olivia Warren. She's a former law clerk to Judge Jackson. She clerked for her on the district court for the District of Columbia. Liv now works as a staff attorney at the Center for Death Penalty Litigation in Durham, North Carolina. And I want to welcome both of you to the podcast. Thank Thank you. you. And that was done in exquisite (laughs) harmony. Uh, Mark, let's start with you, if we can. Let's just talk a little bit about Judge Jackson's biography. Tell us a little bit about who she is. I think folks can get blinded by some of the obvious Harvard Harvardness, but there is quite a kind of zigging and zagging, fascinating path that is quite different from the shortest distance between two points that we've seen in some nominees. And I guess this is my long way of asking, Mark, why is it that you are prepared to be excited about Judge Jackson, even though she went to Harvard and then to Harvard? Because she did not attend Georgetown Prep for high school. And at this stage, I'm willing to cheer on any SCOTUS nominee who didn't. No, just kidding. I mean, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh both went there at the same time. Just think that when we're talking about who's qualified for the Supreme Court, we should note that two little prep school brats got plucked out of you know, the Republican ecosphere and placed on the Supreme Court. But setting that aside, Tanji Brown-Jackson is different. Her entire life looks different from people like Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh. And I really love that. She was raised by public school teachers. Her father then decided to go to law school, but then worked as a lawyer within the public school system. She herself attended public school in my home state of Florida, although in Miami, so I have to hold a slight grudge against her for living somewhere cooler than I did. And then she did go to Harvard, and she did go to Harvard Law, and she did go to big law. But she has spoken pretty candidly about how she did not necessarily fit in very well in big law, how she had real reservations and struggles with the work. Like, you know what? 
there are real issues with this. And I was not allowed to thrive as a person the way I wanted to be. And I think that speaks extremely well of her character. Then in 2005, she became a federal defender. And I will note that we've never had a public defender on the Supreme Court. And she would be, I think, a breath of fresh air, given that three current justices have prosecutorial experience, but none of them have that kind of public defense experience. And she did not just represent uh, normal indigent clients, but also a Guantanamo Bay detainees, which I think is some of the most admirable and noble work that any lawyer could have been doing in the mid-aughts. She then went back to a stint in big law, but joined the U.S. Sentencing Commission after a few more years, where she played a pivotal role in reducing the sentence length for a lot of drug crimes, which, again, I think is a very good thing. Um, President Barack Obama then nominated her to the uh, federal district court here in D.C., on which she served for about seven years. And then in 2021, Joe Biden tapped her for the D.C. circuit. She's been there ever since, less than a year. And now, as part of her incredible rise, she is going to the next and final step of our federal judiciary to the Supreme Court. And I just think that path, that zigzagging, that questioning of what she's meant to do, what she's expected to do, that engagement with people who genuinely and deeply need uh, representation rather than just wealthy corporations doing mergers and acquisitions. I just think all that speaks so well of her and suggests that she will bring really important viewpoints and experiences to the bench that the bench needs badly right now, perhaps more so than ever in, in, in recent history. I love that you started there, Mark, because I was really struck with the truncated biography that President Biden offered up because there was this quality of almost where's Waldo-ness? You know, she's related by marriage to who? Paul Ryan. She went to school with who? Ted Cruz. You know, she clerked for Breyer. She clerked for other really high-octane judges, but she also wrote briefs for Cato. I mean, she's really not somebody who fits into any paradigmatic, I'm a careerist who's just going up a ladder to get to the next thing. If anything, one has a sense that she was more open, more kind of capacious in what she was willing to do and to try than almost anyone I have ever covered um, heading on to the court. Liv, I guess one of the things I wanted to ask you about is this work ethic, because it is so clear and it's a through line amongst everybody who's clerked with her or for her or worked at a firm with her, is that this is a person who works harder than anyone else. And the the question I had for you, you know, you clerked for her when she was on the district court, and obviously you're not going to discuss any cases that you worked on with her. But Here's a clip that we have of her saying that for her clerks, almost every opinion they would complain to her kind of looked the same because she went through the same steps over and over again. And that's not because she's boring. It's because there was a real process, a really diligent process that she kind of replicates over and over again. I try to stick to the same methodology in my rulings. I try to focus, um, I, I do focus on the arguments, the facts and the law, the binding precedents of the Supreme Court and the circuit. And I very methodically work through an analysis of those issues, of those inputs in every case. 
And that helps me uh, to not pay attention to who is involved, whether it's you know, a government that is being run by one administration versus the other. I'm just focused on the arguments that are being made. Um, and and it's, it's funny because my clerks sometimes, um, they say, your, your opinions are all the same. <laughs> Elementally, they all look the same. And I say, yes, exactly. That's the point. That's what I'm trying to do to make sure that I'm treating everybody equally and I'm not paying attention to who's in the administration when I'm, when I'm ruling on a case. And I wonder, Liv, if you want to speak to that for a minute. Well, Judge Jackson approaches every opinion with the clear intention that anyone can access it, read it, and understand it. And I think that's what is so extraordinary about her as a jurist. It's something that is deep-seated in her commitment to public service through all of these sort of different and at times meandering paths that you just described, and through her family's commitment to service and their service of all kinds. So she sees judging as a service, and she understands that it's a service to the American public. Her work ethic is about not just getting it right, It's about showing her work, and critically, it's about making sure that the opinion makes sense. The clerks have shared in our letter in support of her last confirmation that her final step in editing every opinion is really extraordinary, particularly in some of her lengthy opinions. But she stands and she reads them aloud, because each sentence needs to make sense to anyone who would hear it. And that is so important to her, and I think exactly what we need from the judiciary. We're going to take a short break. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. So, Mark, one of the things that I think matters is that Judge Jackson sat as a trial court judge. And other than Justice Sotomayor, we don't actually have anyone on the Supreme Court who has sat in and done this sort of work that Liv is describing of trying cases. And I know that the D.C., it's a very strange court. It's a very technocratic. There's often like complicated agency and administrative and executive cases. It's not necessarily a gig in which you're going to get a whole ton of gun cases and abortion cases and affirmative action cases that 
some of the other judicial nominees bring to the table. But I do wonder if you can talk a little bit both about what it means to have a trial court judge elevated to the Supreme Court, somebody who did this work day in and day out, in addition to what I think you just said about being a public defender. But also, Mark, if you can speak to other than those technocratic kind of limited cases that I think are the bulk of Judge Jackson's works. We do have a couple outlier cases. I'm thinking of the Don McGahn subpoena case, fast track deportations. We have a couple that are going to look like big ticket, I would say outliers, but that may signify at least to the folks who object to her that she is really partisan. So... You know, I have a pet theory that trial court judges have a baseline of competence that is all too often missing among the philosopher kings and queens of the appellate courts. These are folks in the appellate courts who often were just like professors or lawyers for big corporations or movement lawyers, especially on the right. And they join an appellate court and they just sort of opine about how the law should be and hand down these grand pronouncements. And trial court judges don't have that luxury. They have to sit there and conduct a real honest-to-God trial and follow the rules so closely that the folks above them will not reverse them on something big or small. They have to play very closely by the rules. They have to figure out and and memorize the rule book and apply it in a way that is rigorous and fair. And I just think that's a harder job than being an appellate court judge. It might not be as flattering to one's ego, but I think it requires a lot of practical knowledge and, and application of that knowledge in a really, again, sort of like rigorous and thoughtful way. And I think from what I've seen, Judge Jackson did that beautifully in her seven years or so on the federal court in D.C. She seems to have conducted trials very fairly. You do not see a high reversal rate, especially in cases where there was a trial. You don't see the D.C. Circuit repeatedly smacking her down for violating this or that rule. You know, this is a a pretty difficult job. And the fact that she was able to do it for so long and do it so well and win the admiration of so many of her colleagues and even her superiors on the D.C. Circuit, you know, that all suggests to me that she is the right person for this spot, especially when you think, or at least I think, about what Justice Breyer's drawbacks are, what some of his follies and foibles might be. So, you know, he's well known as kind of a a prolix and verbose individual who certainly never served on a trial court, who often spends many minutes just sort of waxing poetic and many pages just sort of philosophizing and theorizing. And I doubt that we can expect that from Judge Jackson based on her opinion. She seems to be like, all right, here's the facts. Let's apply them. Here's the law. Let's figure out what the right result has to be. And I think that Justice Sotomayor does that as well. And I think it really shines through in her work. And it's a rare thing on today's Supreme Court. And it would be lovely if a Justice Katanji Brown Jackson could bring that same perspective and that same style to a court that can too often get mired in its own navel-gazing about the law and too often forget that there are real people in these cases before them, that there will be real consequences, and that in most of these cases, a trial court judge started the whole thing off and, you know, did the real work at the ground level and produced the record that the justices are then reviewing. All of that stuff is important in a kind of nerdy and technocratic way, but it, it, again, is sorely lacking on this court and I think will be a real boon. Two things that you're making me think of. One is 
that really memorable thing that I keep coming back to on this show that Sherilyn Eiffel said about the shadow docket and how you can have a district court judge who makes hundreds of pages of findings of fact, who holds a trial for weeks, who creates a, a record, a supposedly immutable record in the way that you're both describing, showing their work, and how that can get wiped out where on the shadow docket is what Sherilyn was complaining about. And I love to, like, the connection between what each of you are saying about both showing your work, creating a really abundant record, and how those two things go a long way to bolstering the legitimacy of the court itself. And, you know, one of the things that we talk about when we talk about the shadow docket, you know, all due respect to Justice Alito, is it's the opposite of what you're both describing, which is a court showing its work, saying, I'm going to start at A, I'm going to get to Z, and I'm going to explain to you so that you can understand why it is that you give me Article Three lifetime tenure and abundant power. It's because this is what I did. And I think that there's a weird way in which that impetus is really, really valuable at a court with approval ratings in the low 40s. The other thing that I'm really struck by is, you know, we've already, we're just like at the beginning of this conversation and already we're saying technocratic and wonky and, you know, in the weeds and nerdy, I think Mark said. You know, I think that Judge Jackson would be very proud of her nerdy, wonky bona fides, but it does connect her to Justice Breyer in this deep way. There was a really lovely moment when Judge Jackson was accepting the nomination on Friday where she really paid tribute to Breyer. Justice Breyer, in particular, not only gave me the greatest job that any young lawyer could ever hope to have, but he also exemplified every day in every way that a Supreme Court justice can perform at the highest level of skill and integrity while also being guided by civility, grace, pragmatism, and generosity of spirit. Justice Breyer, the members of the Senate will decide if I fill your seat, but please know that I could never fill your shoes. Liv, I guess I want to ask you this question. Judge Jackson clerked for Justice Breyer, and she shares so many of these qualities with him, things that I think are throwaway words like civility and grace and pragmatism. But I think she really deeply has lived her life eschewing being a bomb thrower and turning away from the opportunity to score quick points, turning away from the opportunity to get a lot of attention by being clever at the expense of getting the job done. And it does feel like a really Briarish quality, partly, you know, as Mark has suggested, it's just a way of approaching life that is about doing the work. But it also really reminds me of that Toni Morrison line about how, quote, a very serious function of racism is distraction. It keeps you from doing your work. And I get the sense, correct me if I'm wrong, that Above all things, what Judge Jackson prizes is some of those qualities in Justice Breyer about getting the work done, staying away from flamboyant, you know, argumentation, civility, hearing all comers. Like, those feel like really old-fashioned, almost 
invisible qualities at the judiciary now, but I don't think she's just talking. It is not just talk. It is absolutely the way that Judge Jackson walks through the world. She is someone who, I think because of all of these different worlds that she's lived in herself, and because of all of the different worlds that people she loves and has learned from exist in, she comes with such curiosity and without a lot of assumptions when she meets people. She really asks questions because she wants to hear what you have to say. It's an extraordinary quality. And I think she builds consensus through that real probing, genuine sense of interest in other people. And these qualities that you described that are you know, sound old-timey, but really are are represented in how she approaches people. I'll say, you know, as a law clerk, very few people have ever made me feel as good about myself and as valued as Judge Jackson did. And she does that for everyone in a room. So that's how, when she's on the sentencing commission, she's building consensus across a group of people. That's how, when she's been on the D.C. Circuit, she's building consensus across difference. And that is an extraordinary skill that she has honed throughout her life. The last thing I'll say in terms of sort of the the similarities I, I hear of her and, and Justice Breyer's process in, in writing and working is that that is the quality that she is most focused on having around her. You know, my interview with her was entirely about how I would conduct legal research, my writing process, what kind of steps did I go through, how did I like to be edited, what kind of feedback, how did I like to receive it, and how did I interact with people who I disagreed with. That was a huge part of the conversation. And she is so intent on on building across difference and building high-functioning teams and groups of people. Mark, you mentioned this, but I want to go back to it because it's something you write about so very frequently. And that is, you know, Judge Jackson worked on the Sentencing Commission. She worked as a public defender. She was really instrumental in getting, you know, the crack cocaine disparity in sentencing reduced. As you mentioned, she walked away from a very nice law firm job to do it. And it means that I guess she's the first justice since Thurgood Marshall to do very serious very focused work on defending indigent criminal defendants. And I'm thinking about you, Mark, because you have written so often over the years about the asymmetry at the court and how few justices really have deep, deep legal experience with regard to sentencing, with regard to indigent defendants, with regard to the carceral system at large. Given that Let's stipulate, I think Judge Jackson is still going to be in a three-justice minority with a six-justice supermajority. Most of that supermajority, as you've already noted, you know, maybe worked for a law firm, maybe worked at a law school, but doesn't have that sort of palpable day-to-day sense of what it is to be poor and vulnerable in America. How does that background change the way maybe the court Maybe it's not going to rule any differently, but is there a way in which the background she brings to bear 
could somehow inflect on the way the court looks at criminal justice issues? I I mean, we can only hope. The individual who does that the most now, I think, is Justice Sotomayor. And what's funny there is she was a prosecutor, right? I mean, she, she basically learned the system from the inside and then joined the Supreme Court eventually and turned around and said, I'm, I'm going to use all this knowledge against the dirty tricks that prosecutors are playing, which I think is terrific. But, you know, in some sense, I think Judge Jackson has even more intimate knowledge of what it's like to be on that side of the V, to be, you know, facing years, lifetime in prison, potentially capital punishment, or to be detained unconstitutionally on an island far off the coast of Florida, and to to have no one in between you and the state except this one individual, maybe with some backup, trying to vindicate the Fifth and Sixth Amendment, even if that work is incredibly unpopular. And I can only hope that, say, during oral arguments at conference, in opinions, she can bring that perspective uh, to the table and at least force some of her colleagues, people like Sam Alito, who just are overtly hostile to all criminal defendants, force them to to see the humanity of these individuals and to understand just how poorly the system treats them and how unfair the system is. And that, say, in an ineffective assistance of counsel case, that, you know, the lawyer who fell asleep for 20 minutes actually probably did miss some big stuff that might have changed the outcome of the case. Or that the lawyer who failed to object to some, you know, obvious confrontation clause violation probably did ensure their client's conviction through their own stupidity. That's the kind of stuff that the conservative just to say, oh, you know, it doesn't really matter. These people got a trial or whatever. They got a fair shake. They had a public defender for 10 minutes help them plead down from 20 to 15 years. You know, they got what they deserved. I I can only hope that Judge Jackson can step in and say, excuse me, I was that person there given five minutes to do that plea bargain. And I would like to explain to you just how badly the deck is stacked here and how crucial it is that we use our authority to intervene and and shift that power imbalance a bit, because if the Supreme Court doesn't do it, nobody will. We will be right back. And Liv, I'm going to ask you the question that you knew I was going to ask you, which is, in some ways, this is a remarkable moment for the first time in history for women on the Supreme Court. An extraordinary, you know, two mothers of uh, teens and tweens. And I think the part where I actually started crying, I think, on television was when really that was celebrated that this is hard, that this act of trying to have a family, be a partner, raise children, while also reaching, as Mark said at the beginning, for the highest echelons of achievement, it comes at a huge bruising cost. And I feel like I have to ask you about it. It's such a It's sort of like I don't want to ask you the question they asked Judge Barrett at her confirmation hearings about who does the laundry at her house. But I want to ask you like the deep, heartfelt question about how that juggle both expressed itself as you were clerking for Judge Jackson and then maybe more pointedly as the mother of a new little guy yourself, how she's kind of modeled for you how to do this work of, by the way, like driving around long distances being a lawyer, coming home, having a baby, having a partner, all of it. So I don't know. That was one of my Briar-esque 19-point questions, but give it your best shot. Well, when I was in Chambers, I was, for a time, the only person who did not have a child. So 
Judge Jackson has two children, her career clerk has two children, and my co-clerk had a then three-year-old and was also pregnant for eight months of her clerkship with her second child. So I saw on so many dimensions how Judge Jackson really takes public service very literally and broadly. It is to the public, but also to the people who we love and have obligations to. And she took that so seriously for all of us in chambers. I think in terms of the day-to-day, it promoted a lot of efficiency. I know that people have talked about her hard work. Judge Jackson is a real person with a, a life and encouraged all of us to be. She supports her family. She's present for them. And she prioritizes work and works very hard and long hours, as many of us in the legal profession do. But there's no sort of pride or value in staying late or adding to the labor, particularly when we all have other labor that we are doing for our communities and for society that is often forgot as labor. So that was really beautiful and powerful to see. You know, I I think that as, as a new parent, becoming a parent has imbued me with a sense of compassion that I couldn't access before, perhaps part of my own limitations. But I think uh, I've realized how much is out of my control. And I think that she understands that, that we are all people with lives, with things within our control and not within our control. You know, she's extraordinary at mentoring her clerks, and she is so enthusiastic and so supportive and always ready and able to hop on the phone and answer your questions. She gave me some of the best parenting advice I've gotten, which is, there will come a time when you have changed your child's diaper, you have fed them, they are clean, and they are loved and cared for, and they have nevertheless been screaming for hours. And at that time, you may put them in their crib where they are safe, and you may walk away and take care of yourself. And that makes you a good parent, not a bad parent. And I, I clung to that. But other clerks who have expanded their families beyond the first child... I haven't received this advice directly, but I have never seen a stronger or more compelling pitch for a minivan. Judge Jackson really feels like that is the time to accept that that is the phase of your life. And there's sort of really physical demonstrations of why you need a minivan. You know, she's persuasive in every dimension of her life. First of all, I'm like totally moved by the idea that I can put my 16-year-old son in the crib away like that still all these years later is so eminently good advice that I'm going to just sit with it I also am just thinking that we should get Chevy to be advertising on Amicus very soon that was really lovely Liv thank you Mark I want to ask you a question that I just I'm struggling with, which is, I'm just noting this tweet by um, our friend Elliot Williams, who tweeted, imagine a supremely qualified SCOTUS nominee with two Harvard degrees with honors, a SCOTUS clerkship for the justice they'd replace, and two years as a federal judge. Well, that's Chief Justice John Roberts. Katanji Brown-Jackson has all of that, plus seven more years as a judge. 
There's no question by any objective metric she is qualified. She's so qualified, Mark, that three Republicans less than a year ago voted to confirm her to the D.C. Circuit. And yet there will be pushback. It has begun. Lindsey Graham, who voted for her last time and has no reason to change his position, she's not done anything, uh, now saying that she is a radical, rabid lefty. What are we to expect in terms of pushback? And maybe this is a good place for me to pull on my other 17-part question, which was when I said to you, there are very few big-ticket cases in a career that was largely pretty narrow and pretty technical. But some of those big-ticket cases... You know, the Don McGahn subpoena, immigration, you noted her career includes defending Guantanamo detainees. What are we looking for in terms of pushback, Mark? So, yes, there are some opinions that Judge Jackson wrote on the federal district court that I think will be cited in the case against her. Most notably, perhaps the the case involving Don McGahn, where she refused to block a subpoena, refused to spare him from facing uh, a congressional scrutiny and testifying before Congress. And that is the case where she wrote what's probably her most famous line, where she said, presidents are not kings. This means that they do not have subjects bound by loyalty or blood whose destiny they are entitled to control. Uh, If you can find a trial court judge who can write like that and do the job well, you've just got to put them immediately on SCOTUS, in my view. But, you know, there are a few other cases the Republicans have already flagged. One, a really complex case involving uh, federal unions where she sided with the unions, got reversed at the D.C. Circuit on something of a technicality. A few other cases that are somewhat high-profile But again, not the culture war stuff that you would really fear if you're a Democratic nominee. Not anything about abortion or LGBTQ rights. A lot of stuff that involves complicated federal rulemaking and sometimes a kind of statutory labyrinth where you could quite reasonably get lost, whether you're a litigant or a judge, and reasonable people can disagree. I find it difficult to imagine Josh Hawley screaming about the Administrative Procedures Act and saying, you know, how could you claim this is our arbitrary and capricious. It's it's no such thing. I don't think that makes for great TV on C-SPAN. So the case against her seems to be so far that, well, she's supported by Democrats and she's supported by, quote, dark money groups like Demand Justice. You know, here I will point out that it was Republicans who really introduced dark money spending to Supreme Court nominations, Republicans who spent millions and millions of dollars to keep Merrick Garland off the Supreme Court, then put Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett on the court. So they don't have a leg to stand on, but that's never stopped them before. Uh, I think that they will just say, look, look, if Democrats like her, if progressives like her, there must be something wrong with her. So even though she has a spotless record, even though she is just a consummate professional in every way, we think that she's a a sleeper agent for the extreme left. She's just flown straight from communist Russia to the Senate, and she's here to blow up our Constitution. I really doubt that that will work with Joe Manchin, who is perhaps the only vote who matters here. I don't think it will work with Lisa Murkowski or Susan Collins either. Maybe one or both of them will vote against her at the end of the day. But it still doesn't seem to me like Republicans have a persuasive or effective case to make against her at these hearings. Liv, I want to give you a chance to talk about one other aspect of Judge Jackson that I've seen a lot casually, and I see it actually in her work. And that is, and, and I don't know how to put this in a way that doesn't sound like I'm 
offering a knock on other Supreme Court justices, but she's incredibly other-focused. <laughs> and I don't know if it's, as you said, sort of moving through a world where she's a person of color, moving through a world where, you know, she's a Black woman with a white husband and mixed-race children, or simply moving through a world where she's pinging from big law to the public defender gig to the Sentencing Commission, where she's just phenomenally gifted on the sort of EQ front. And I remember saying this about both Elena Kagan and John Roberts. Uh, Kagan, you know, it shows up, Mark and I have talked about this on the show, when she writes in the second person. She always writes, imagine you, like, think about if you. John Roberts also, man, that guy can read a room. I feel like this is a really fascinating moment to come to the bench with a really, I think, deft and actually not just, it's not just a party trick. She really is phenomenally other-focused and phenomenally, you know, empathetic and able to imagine walking in someone else's shoes. And it's happening in a moment where there's not a lot of that, not at the court, not on the judiciary generally, and certainly not in sort of civic life. And I guess I'm wondering... And maybe this is sort of outside of your ability to comment, but I think there's an amazing amount of pain in store for somebody who is really good at thinking about others, thinking about how other folks are feeling. You mentioned, you know, the way she reads an opinion because it really matters how it lands to others. This is a horrible moment to be that kind of person, and this is a horrible court on which to be that kind of person. And I guess I'm wondering what she is going to bring that in a moment when, you know, you have justices who are very proud about saying they don't read media from the other side, they don't speak to the other side, they have no interest in impacts on the other side. Whatever Judge Jackson is, she is not that. One of the most lasting things that I've taken away from my time with Judge Jackson and every interaction with her since, and I think it's especially something that I lean on a lot as as I myself am representing people who are accused of crimes and who are too poor to afford lawyers. She has seen so much of the world through her own experiences, through her deep interest in the experience of others. And she comes back to it every day with joy. It's remarkable. Um, when I am burnt out and tired and I cannot see the light, I honestly think about how Judge Jackson still can. And she's 51 and I'm 33, so I've got to keep at it for at least, you know, another 18 years. The way that she processes difficulty is returning to the work. She does not have time for disillusionment and for bitterness and for despair. She, again, going back to the theme of her work ethic, that is how she processes it. Mark, it's such a great pivot to the sort of last question I wanted to ask you about, which is she was really at pains on Friday to mention Constance Baker Motley. As it happens, I share a birthday with the first black woman ever to be appointed as a federal judge, the Honorable Constance Baker Motley. We were born exactly 49 years 
to the day apart. Today, I proudly stand on Judge Motley's shoulders, sharing not only her birthday, but also her steadfast and courageous commitment to equal justice under law. Judge Motley's life and career has been a true inspiration to me as I have pursued this professional path. And if I am fortunate enough to be confirmed as the next Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, I can only hope that my life and career, my love of this country and the Constitution, and my commitment to upholding the rule of law and the sacred principles upon which this great nation was founded will inspire future generations of Americans. It echoed something Justice Ginsburg used to always say about standing on the shoulders of the women who came before. And I know you're our resident Constance Baker Motley aficionado here at the magazine, but what was she saying by sort of lashing herself to this pathbreaker just in the last beat of her speech accepting this nomination? I think most obviously she was humbly sort of invoking the historic nature of her nomination, right? She is the first Black woman ever nominated to SCOTUS, and Constance Baker Motley was the first Black woman ever placed on the federal judiciary at any level. And clearly she is not an egotistical or narcissistic woman, and she wasn't going to go out there and be like, I'm the best, and I'm the first, and I might as well be the last. But I think she did a really nice job, uh, as they say, making history rhyme by bringing up uh, another trailblazer on who shoulders she does stand. And I would like to believe that, you know, since she's clearly familiar with Constance Baker Motley, she knows that uh, Constance Baker Motley faced a lot of the same accusations that Judge Jackson is facing now, that she was not qualified, that she would be biased because of her identity, that she hadn't really earned her spot on the court. And unfortunately, in all of these years since the 1960s, not too much has changed in that regard. We saw as soon as rumors of KBJ's nomination started to trickle down the internet, we saw people saying, well, she's just being picked because of her identity. She's not really qualified. Other people are clearly more qualified. There is, in some quarters, especially on the right, an inherent suspicion and skepticism toward women of color who are nominated for powerful positions. And Constance Baker Motley blew past all of that and made history. And I would like to believe that Judge Jackson knows she's going to do the exact same thing over these next few weeks. And she is going to, in some ways, kind of finish the process that her predecessor began all of those years ago and finally bring her perspective, her experience, her representation of her community to the highest court and prove to all of the Black women and everybody else out there that, you know, a Black woman deserves to sit on the Supreme Court. She got there by her own merit. She can do the job just as well, if not better, than everybody else. And anyone who dreams big in this country, it sounds a little Obama-era schmaltzy, but anyone who dreams big can maybe just make it to that top level. And and that's an incredible thing. I feel like in this age of cynicism, we don't think or talk about it a lot. But on Friday, watching her speech, it really, really moved me. And I, I felt like she believed it. And that kind of passion is rare these days. And I think it'll carry her over the finish line. I'm not going to let you guys go without playing you this clip 
that I don't know if you've heard. It's from December 12th, 2016. This is like a fun Shakespeare mock trial that is a, a thing of beauty that happens in Washington, D.C., And I want to play you a colloquy between Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson and the now Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelogger as they are trying to work through complicated issues related to justice, Romeo and Juliet, Taylor Swift— what have you. And I should note, for for the purposes of this clip, Justice Samuel Alito was presiding. So let's listen to it, and then I just want you to tell me, because I do think this is both a historic day, but an uncharacteristically, I love that you've both made this point, really kind of joyful day for people who have been waiting for this moment in America. So you're going to hear the voices of first Judge Jackson and then Elizabeth Prelogger. I would like to get back to Justice Alito's point, because I really think that Friar Lawrence was in this for himself. He wanted to be the hero. You don't get many opportunities to save the day, and he was not throwing away his shot. So just tell me, tell me why isn't that something that we should take into consideration? Well, I think his motives were entirely pure. And keep in mind that Romeo and Juliet came to him. They, they dragged him into this mess. And so he wasn't the one who was really instigating this for his own glory. I think that that means that the parents are really the proper focal point of, of scrutiny here. They're the ones who bear responsibility for what happened to Romeo well, and Juliet. Well, you mentioned the Taylor Swift song. Yes, she wrote a song about love story. But she also has another song called Bad Blood. I mean... Wasn't Friar Lawrence aware of the fact that we were in this situation? So, Liv, I'm going to let you take the first crack. What do you see in there that folks should take away if they can only have one sort of enduring personal portrait of Katanji Brown-Jackson in this moment with Taylor Swift, Justice Alito, and Romeo and Juliet? What should we take from this? Well, I think we should take away the music. There is music in her life, there is music in chambers, and she is someone who, again, makes time for the things that give our life meaning. I think that's something she shares with Justice Breyer, and it's something she shares with Justice Scalia, Justice Ginsburg, many of our most esteemed jurists who have loved so many art forms and and delighted in participating peripherally. And Mark, do you have a closing thought on Romeo, Juliet, and the DC bar? I think one-eighth of the people in that room got the joke. And I think she deserves a better and more appreciative audience. And I just hope that she can team up with Justice Kagan, the master of pop culture references and judicial opinions, to drop some funny bombs that both help to illuminate the case and make people laugh and engage more with the law. That is, again, just, I think, one of the best things a judge can do. And clearly, she is a master at it. So I look forward to more Taylor Swift-related jokes, more laughter in the oral argument transcripts, and more looks of utter confusion and dismay from Sam Alito as he realizes that the reference went totally over his head. Mark Joseph Stern covers the courts and the law and the Supreme Court and state courts and LGBTQ issues and voting rights and, like, just everything at Slate.com. Mark, thank you for being with us. Thanks so much for having me on. 
And Olivia Warren clerked for Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson on the District Court for the District of Columbia. She works now as a staff attorney at the Center for Death Penalty Litigation in Durham, North Carolina. Liv, thank you so, so much for joining us. Thank you, Dahlia. Before we sign off on a very busy week, we wanted to take a moment to mark a deeply painful loss. Walter Dellinger was not only the acting Solicitor General of the United States under President Bill Clinton, head of the Office of Legal Counsel, and a star appellate lawyer at the Supreme Court. He was also a dear friend of Slate's and of this podcast, and his contributions to our Supreme Court breakfast tables over the years were the stuff of legend. I was honored to welcome him to the second episode ever of this podcast, all the way back in 2014. Walter has argued a bajillion cases in front of the Supreme Court. He knows it as well as anyone, and I'm delighted to have you here. Thank you, Walter, for joining us on Amicus. And thank you, Adalia, though you are really an amica, I think, (laughs) not an amicus. It's the feminine form. But go ahead. Really? We're going to start with Latin? Okay. Um, Walter, the first question I have for you is... And that was the first of many appearances on this show. Walter's work on reproductive freedom, on LGBTQ rights, on voting access and immigrants' rights was broad and deep and impactful. He died last week. Walter was a person who somehow managed to accumulate literally dozens of young lawyers whom he mentored and supported and raised up to become today some of the finest activists and judges and appellate attorneys in the country. And for every one of those people, including me, and for the country itself, there is just a big Walter-shaped hole in the fabric of the moral universe. Thank you for listening. And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for your letters and your questions and your notes. You can keep in touch at amicus at slate.com or you can always find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast and we really do love your letters today's show was produced by sarah burningham alicia montgomery is executive producer and june thomas is senior managing producer of slate podcasts we will be back with another episode of amicus in two weeks so until then hang on in there Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.